In these challenging days following the presidential election, we share a reminder why community radio is valuable. In the process of sharing stories, in the process of making your voice heard, that's a tool for empowerment. Our guest, Sylvia Thomas, visited some 40 community radio stations around the world. And she's on the Radio Survivor podcast to share some of what she's learned in the process, like how stations in other countries differ from those in the U.S. A lot of the stations that I visited, but especially the stations in Bolivia, had a really different level of cohesiveness between the shows. And so it was more like people who identified with certain elements of that community, with that neighborhood, came together. People still had their individual shows to some extent, but there was just a lot more collaboration between what was going to happen in the various hours of the day. That's on this edition of Radio Survivor. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Kahn. And my name is Paul Reismandel. And uh, we have a great show for you. We have a really good show there today. There is just no... Because we had a really great guest. We just had sit a with us. great guest who we just spoke with. Uh, so, you know, we do the show. We're, we're, we're pulling back the curtain. <laughs> we're doing the intro after we did the interview. But that's so that we can actually uh, guarantee you that it's a fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic interview. Eric, who do we talk with? Sylvia Thomas traveled around the globe visiting over 40 or around 40 community radio stations in 2014 and 2015. And she sits down to talk to us about um, a bird's eye view, not about each individual station, but about the lessons that she learned and took away as a community radio person, as a, a friend of Radio Survivor. And um, it's, a really, uh, it's a really great way for us to, uh, to fulfill the promise that we made uh, in the last episode that in 2017 we're gonna it's gonna be the year of global community radio at Radio Survivor. We're really gonna have an opportunity to uh, to bring a lot more stories of of what's going on, how community radio stations function on this planet, and and how what can we learn from each other? Uh, what what are right. what are what are the things we can learn from from each other's experience globally, um, community. To community station to station, I think is something we really we really want to address more so here on the show, and something I think we're uniquely positioned to do with our outlook uh, on community radio uh, as as a form. Um, and what's great is Sylvia drops some uh, history and right. knowledge that. Uh, I I know I was completely unaware of I that Eric you're completely unaware of and I think for a lot of you you're gonna be completely aware of even those of you who have read so much on community radio and and in radio I think there is still uh, some history here that will be a surprise to you yeah a and, very pleasant and gosh surprise. we only really spent an hour on uh, probably um, you know Sylvia Thomas will be back on the program again yeah. in the future because because. Uh, she spent a year, I just have to repeat myself, she traveled the globe visiting community radio stations in so many different places and so many different stations that uh, there's not just one interview, you know, there's there's a number of ways for us to approach uh, her experiences and the knowledge that she has about about community radio. So this is this is just the first one, and it's coming up in just a moment. It is our great luck that she's willing to share this uh, with us here on the podcast, and is has agreed to come back, has agreed to come and share additional stories and additional insights she's gained. And and I and I have to tell. I'm going to tell the story now of how she learned about Radio Survivor. She told us after we finished the interview, we turned off the recording is uh, she learned about Radio Survivor from a friend of the show who lives in Brazil. His name is Alvaro Burns. We mentioned him on the last show. <laughs> and <laughs> we were, it was wonderful to learn that our, our friend who we've never spoken to and who we really want to have on the show. So this is us sort of guilting you uh, into it <laughs> Hello, on the show, Alvaro, that we really want to have you on the show. He works in community radio uh, outside of Sao Paulo in, in Brazil. Uh, they met... And he introduced uh, Sylvia to our podcast. So it's these sort of global connections forged to radio. It is wonderful because is why we're you know, here. I, I know that radio that podcasting is is international. I know that, but I also sort of roll my eyes whenever anybody mentions it because really it just doesn't it still hasn't clicked. Like I, I don't think that we have listeners 
outside of of Portland. Oh, I mean, you know, my, right in my bond. And of course, in, in we do bones. this in English, yeah. right? Uh, we are not multilingual, uh, so you know that is a barrier, of course. Uh, you know, and it's wonderful that there are folks around the world who. Um, have learned English uh, in when we have not <laughs> learned Portuguese, <laughs> learned Portuguese yeah. in other languages to make our show more accessible to them um, as an artifact of our of our uh, colonial privilege here as uh, as Americans as middle class Americans here. Um, but uh, that said. Uh, it's a wonderful connection, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, I think. Um, we think you'll really enjoy this interview before we get to that. Uh, let us assure you that, uh, we are recording this several days after the elections here in the United States. So we are aware who our president elect is, and we want to let you know, we're going to try and make sense of this or help you make sense of this. And maybe you'll help us make sense of this. Sure. In, in our tiny diff- corner of the world, tiny corner of the world, community in, radio, in many corner. dimensions, and this comes up. And actually, Sylvia had some some really trenchant thoughts and really informed thoughts that uh, informed in, in part by her experience elsewhere. Right. Uh, but some also, advice for community radio that you'll that you'll get to hear in this interview. She also uh, her home station there in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is a very very diverse community with uh, some particular. Uh, people that that Donald Trump has uh, targeted in his speeches uh, in the way that he does. So so she has experience both uh, locally and around the world. Uh, and so, yeah, we're really lucky. We're really lucky that we booked her. Uh, and uh, it was not a, it was not the we need this guest for this news event. It just sort of uh, fell into our laps that way and uh, couldn't have couldn't have gone better. But, uh, yeah, the FCC. Yes, is going to be uh, f- uh, creating a policy that will impact community radio. Now. It will impact radio. Uh, we there may be policies with regard to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which certainly affects some stations and yeah. it's affects public radio. And and uh, you know, I don't think we can put a finer point on it than this. This is a reminder of why we need community radio. Yeah, and I, you know, out there, uh, all of our listeners are probably uh, parts of stations and parts of communities, and we're really interested in uh, hearing from you and hearing about uh, the work that you're engaging in uh, as we move forward into into these uncertain times. It'd be very uh, very useful to know how Community Radio plans to respond and plans to help. Well, I'm really um. Let's let's get right to let's get right to the interview with Sylvia Thomas. We're joined on the line by Sylvia Thomas, who traveled the world on a a Thomas J. Watson fellowship, visiting over 40 community radio stations in how many countries, Sylvia Thomas? Um, It turned out to be about six different countries. Six different countries, 40 community radio stations, all in the year uh, 2014 to 2015 in a 12-month period. And uh, we're so happy to have you because we're going to talk about about that uh, that experience and what you learned about community radio. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm happy to join you on the Radio Survivor podcast. Yeah, and so uh, you are currently an apprentice at KFAI in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, tell us about your radio station. Yeah, KFAI is an incredible community radio station. We have over 200 volunteers and 12 different ethnic language programs. Um, and it covers all of the Twin Cities metro area. It's one of those kind of older community radio stations that was implemented in the 1970s. Um, and so we have like, it's in this super interesting location where it's like, um, has one of the largest Somali populations in the country, in our neighborhood. And we also have the university of Minnesota. So a ton of students. And then there's also this kind of like older hippie population and so everybody's fused together and it comes out with we come out with some great great stories and great times and great community building wow so that's a worthy of a podcast in and of (laughs) itself but today we're having you on to talk about the trip you took around the world what inspired you to do this work um well i first 
Should I talk about when I first became involved? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. I first became interested in community radio in 2010. Um, it was just a few weeks before I started college. I re- originally went to school at Goucher College in Baltimore, um, Maryland, and I grew up on a farm in rural Minnesota, and we didn't really have very much TV and or internet. <laughs> we, I was on dial-up mm-hmm. internet until my parents recently like disconnected their dial-up and they still don't have high-speed internet. Um, and so it's a pretty oh. remote area that we just listened to the radio. It was basically always on in my house. And it was this very specific, I had like this very specific radio awakening. Um, and it was on this hot day in August. It was just a couple of weeks before I was supposed to start school. And I was helping out my dad doing some farm work. And it was like, in Minnesota, we get these hot days where like, you're just so, it's so humid that you're just constantly sweating. And I went and I sat down in our sunroom, which was kind of like where our radio was playing. And I sat down in this rocking chair and I'm just dripping with sweat and I'm listening to the radio and I'm just like, wow, this is an incredible device. I have been educated by the same device that my parents bought for probably like $6 before I was even born my entire life. This is how I know what's going on in the world. Um, and then I kind of thought about like, I think I want to go into radio. And just a couple of weeks later, I was given an option to take a first year course. And one of the first year course options, it was like a one-time offer basically it was a community radio course um and Hmm. so I took it I it was an incredible experience we learned how to make our own radio pieces but then another big part of that class was volunteering at a school in inner city Baltimore it was an alternative middle school called Learning Inc and we made radio documentaries with the students talking about various issues that were going on in their lives um And I think that that experience with the students in particular was just really eye-opening for me as I watched them, like, share these incredible stories that weren't really put, that I didn't hear on public radio or mainstream media growing up. But, and it was this really interesting kind of, like, I watched the students feel changed and empowered by sharing their story. And then also being able to expose their story to listeners was so dramatic too, because listeners were hearing a new perspective that they hadn't thought about. Maybe um, the perspective of like a a 13 year old who lived in inner city Baltimore. So it was really interesting. And that kind of opened up the realm of community radio for me for the rest of my college career and into um, applying for the Watson fellowship. So this classic Goucher was is it connected to a station where you did where these eventually broadcast on a community station somewhere in the we area? We had a college station. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was interesting. While I was at Goucher College, the president of Goucher was Sandy Unger, who was one of the hosts on All Things Considered for about ten years in mm. the nineties. Um, maybe into the early two thousands, actually, and so he. Um, kind of supported a lot of like they had a radio a nice radio studio and um he supported the Goucher College radio and stuff so we broadcasted a lot on on the college station and I mean I think a course in community radio is a fairly rare thing uh in anywhere, except maybe unless you're going to an actual community radio station. It's not so uncommon necessarily to find uh, schools that offer sort of maybe a documentary course right? or a course in radio production. What made it a community radio course? Do you have a sense, I mean, of, of why it's a community radio course as opposed to sort of more a, a general uh, radio production course? Well, I mean, it, a lot of it had to do with the professor. Um, and I think that my professor for that class. She was an English professor and she had done this incredible, she was telling me that she had done this really awesome radio work when she was younger, where she had basically moved to the red light district. I think it was in Atlanta and done, um, lived in an apartment with three other women and they did stories on, um, prostitutes on women who were, 
you know, in the sex industry. And she would tell me these, mm. uh, how profound it was to be part of that. So I think it was really her values that kind of brought the community radio element um, to the schools and that she, to the school and that she had kind of done similar work before. Um, yeah. So. So then, you know, thinking about this, because I think I've talked to a lot of uh, young people now who are college age coming out of college who, because of, I think, podcasting in particular, are sort of lit up about public radio, right? They're, they hear This American Life and they hear a lot of, of new, really good new style documentary and journalism being done in this realm and they get lit up about joining public radio. And from this experience that you've had and, you know, certainly you've, uh, you've listened to public radio – how would you characterize that difference? And I think this is, I mean, I'm asking this because I think it is sort of a foundational question for, for, for kind of what you do. Uh, what makes a community radio doing those documentaries or working with the, uh, the youth in, in Baltimore, what makes a community radio as opposed to something more like um, This American Life or something that might air on All Things Considered? Yeah, um, I think that that's a really great question that a lot of – you know, it takes a lot of reflection for me kind of constantly to ask that question in a lot of ways, because I'm constantly impressed by the quality of community of public radio. Um, and so it is this really interesting, there is this really interesting difference. So I think kind of going back to the question that Eric, that you asked earlier, the way I got interested in doing this fellowship in particular was that I was a geography major and I was doing radio on the side and I wrote my senior capstone on how community radio can be used as a participatory development tool. Mm. And Participatory development. Yeah. And so one of the things that um, I, what, one of the really profound things that I was witnessing with community radio was that People who were making, it was just as valuable for the people who were making the radio and sharing their voice and sharing the stories as it was for the listener. And I think that in the process of sharing stories, in the process of making your voice heard, that's a tool for empowerment. And so that's a little bit different than public radio, mm -hmm. where it tends to be a few well-educated people who are few in kind of um, in comparison to the larger population. Use the word elite. Yeah, <laughs> elite. <laughs> <laughs> a few elite people <laughs> who are, um, you know, just kind of make, taking the stories of other people and putting them on it, which is also super great. And I think that there are a lot of podcasts that do do a really good job at being accessible to a lot of different people in the general public. One of the, but I do think that one of the biggest and greatest attributes of community radio is that anybody can be involved and it doesn't matter if you've graduated from high school. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you came from. It doesn't matter what language you speak in a lot of respects. Your voice is just as important and your story is just as important. And that's a symbol of empowerment. Well, that is a wonderful place for us to move into your journey um, across the world. Now, we're not going to be able to talk about every station you visited specifically on this episode of the podcast. We'll have to save that for a future time. But tell us about, tell us about, I mean, how did you structure your trip around the world to visit radio stations? Well, <laughs> basically, I was <laughs> I decided to go to Bolivia first. So um, when I first applied for the fellowship, I had in mind that I was going to go to um, Bolivia, Bangladesh, and Tanzania to look at different community radio stations. Um, and I was really lucky because this fellowship is a really amazing opportunity, and they are very open to people they understand that you might meet people along the way of your, along your journey of being outside of the U S and it might make sense to go to a country that wasn't in your original plan. But I had originally a plan to go to Bolivia, Bangladesh and Tanzania because most people say that community radio started in Bolivia, um, with the tin miners and, um, in like the 19, 
20s and 30s, I think. Really? This is a story I've not heard. Yeah, new oh, information. Okay. This is new information to us, so please explain. <laughs> so basically, um, I well, I want to say I don't know if the date is quite correct. It might have been, now that I'm thinking, it might have been 1938. Um, but basically what happened is that Bolivia had a really oppressive government, and they had tin miners who were mining tin in um, the southern part of Bolivia, and they organized and created their own radio station as a way to organize against the government. Um, and the way this radio station was, was used was really interesting. It was actually like each miner paid a percentage of their income to contribute to the radio station. So... Almost like union dues. Yeah, it, it was. It was part of kind of union dues. Um, and so that helps the radio station be able to survive. And it created this um, communal effect of sharing information, um, which brought about this idea. I mean, it probably was brought about in other respects too, but this is the earliest known um, idea of community radio is what happened in Bolivia. And still today, Bolivia has a vast number of community radio stations. Um, when I was there, Evo Morales, who was the president, was um, giving a lot of grants to indigenous communities for starting their own community radio stations. And this idea right, because he was he was um, a, a, one of uh, one of the people elected in a sort of leftist wave of of politicians. Uh, Ava Morales being uh, one of the first indigenous president. Yeah, it's true. Indig it's true, and uh, socialist. Um, and yeah. there was a little bit less controversy around Ava when I was there um, right. than there is now. <laughs> but yeah, he was giving money to indigenous communities to start their own community radio stations. So I was. In 2014, 20, yeah, 2014. Yeah, 2014. And so I was, I wanted to start in Bolivia because, well, one, I speak Spanish. Um, and so that was going to be the first place where there wasn't going to be the largest language barrier. And two, because I thought it would be interesting to start in the place where they have the oldest community radio system. And it's really a vibrant community radio system that they have in place. There are, there are just tons of radios and people are listening to the radio all the time. Um, and so I wanted to start there. And then I was interested in going to Bangladesh because I was, uh, working to apply for LPFM and implementing a youth podcast in Minnesota. program in Minnesota. Yep. And some Bangladeshis came through Minnesota and contacted um, the group that I was a part of, which was called Twin Cities Community Radio. And um, they wanted to meet and because they were, the government was putting in, was supporting community radio stations as a form of development in Bangladesh. Um, and it was this new idea. So it was kind of, I wanted the contrast of going to, from being in Bolivia, where it's been around for a, a, a mm. long time, and going to Bangladesh, where it's this new idea, and seeing, you know, how the government supported community radio stations without making them biased, and really, um, you know, what, if the community radio stations were making an influence on development. And then finally, I was interested in going to Tanzania because UNESCO has a huge um, influence on community radio stations in Tanzania. And I knew that before I went there. And I wanted to see if that was influencing the way community radio stations were functioning and the way that they were influencing local community. Tell us who UNESCO is. Um, it's a form of the United Nations. It's the communications branch of the United Nations. I'm really fascinated. Uh, there, there's so many places I want to I yeah, dive that's into. That's just here. the beginning. <laughs> yes. went more, she, <laughs> Sylvia Thomas visited more radio stations than that. But I, I think I want to go back to this sort of origin story, which is brand new to me, um, uh, of community radio having been birthed in, in Bolivia uh, with, with what seems like a very practical need, right, to, to organize uh, workers in the face probably of some sort of systematic oppression. And my question is that in Bolivia, in your experience, were people involved in community radio aware of this history? Is this history sort of knit into sort of 
the national consciousness or or into or at least is it knit into sort of the the culture of community radio in, in I mean Bolivia? it's very much part of the consciousness of the people there and particularly part of the people I mean part of the consciousness of the people who are involved in community radio I don't know if it's part of the consciousness of just the general population but one thing that's really sure. interesting is that um around this time of year they have this um holiday called Todos Santos, which means all saints. And you go to the cemeteries and, um, you sing to your dead ancestors. And it's part of the Aymara tradition, which is the most prominent indigenous group in Bolivia. And they will, some of the largest icons in history are, um, kind of present at at the most famous cemetery and people from all over the country will come to sing to these most iconic people in history. And a few of those, I mean, like the most famous one that I can think of right now, he is known, his title is social communicator. So he was a television Hmm. host who is known for kind of saving a lot of people in a certain respect by giving voice to their stories on air. And that is just so um, praised and cherished. And I thought that that was like, so that whole idea of like being part of social communication, using communications for the social good was very well known in the general population. Mm -hmm. And is there a well-developed state radio, you know, like, like a BBC or or a public radio in, in Bolivia as well? Yeah, they have, they have like, um, a kind of a national radio. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bolivia is really interesting. They do a lot of things just Bolivia. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of foreign influence in Bolivia right now. Um, and so, but they do have like a national radio. I think it's uh, run by the government. So yeah, they have it. And, and in any given community, does the community station have a fair degree of listenership? Is it, is it, is it perhaps more prominent maybe in a lot of communities than community radio often is here in in the States. Yeah. I mean, I think that people just listen to the radio more like after Bolivia, Mm -hmm. I went to Peru, but that was because some of the stations that I was working with in Peru had connections with, I mean, in Bolivia had connections with stations in Peru. And it was really interesting, like going in the mountains. Actually, I was like, driving through the mountains in a van basically. And I looked to the side of me and there's this guy who's like herding his cows and having a stick to herd his cows in one hand and his radio wrapped under his arm in the other. And that's just how it was. It was like people were carrying their radio everywhere. The fruit vendor had um, his radio kind of out there. The woman who served uh, like coffee in, in the market, she had her radio on, you know? So I think people were listening to the radio a lot and it wasn't like, Oh, this is the one station that we're listening to. Um, there were a lot of different people listen to a lot of different stations. And, and is this talk programming, uh, music programming, are there other sorts of, of cultural programming? Yeah, there's a ton of, uh, well, I think one of the biggest things and one of the biggest kind of issues um, in Bolivian culture is cultural sustainability, particularly around the Aymara indigenous community. So there mm-hmm. are certain stations that broadcast only in Aymara because they want their kids to be able to speak Aymara. And that's one of the things that Evo did put in place and he really endorsed during his time is that he made Aymara, like the second language in schools. So students were learning Aymara as they learned English or before they were learning English. Um, and then also like very interesting storytelling, Aymara storytelling that happened in both Aymara and in Spanish. And so, so that people kind of um, could reconnect with these stories that was part of the indigenous culture. Yes. You use the adjectives very interesting. What made that very interesting, the storytelling? Well, I think part of it is is like all of the stories that they that were told or that were explained to me, um, there was just so much symbolism that mm. it was sometimes it was really interesting to understand like, oh, okay, so you think that this story is about a girl being chased by a fox, but really this has to do with, like, wisdom and slyness in life or something like that. And so I Mm -hmm. think that that was, like, really the profoundness 
of um, where the stories were going is that they really had this different symbolic meaning. And I also think... Sure, so ancient ancient storytelling culture. Yeah, and I really. also think it was interesting that they were telling in Spanish and in Aymara because as much as a lot of Aymara families wanted their kids to speak Aymara and all of these things, if they were raised in the city, which... Um, there's a, a really big movement from rural to urban areas. Then, um, so a lot of kids do grow up mostly speaking Spanish. It was like so important that they were also telling these stories in Spanish and not just in Aymara, because if they were going to lose the language, that was one thing, but losing the stories was something else. Like they needed the stories mm-hmm. to be in the life, even if the language wasn't. So it sounds like in, in Bolivia that uh, a role of QD radio then is really to help serve minority communities, you know, folks who are, who are uh, maybe cultural minorities or language minorities. Um, that seems to be a very particular thing. Is, is, is Am I getting that correct? Well, it is kind of hard because, you know, 60% of Bolivia's co- uh, population has Amada roots. Aha. So, so... Bye. <laughs> minority in the United States. My characterization States. <laughs> is wrong. Yeah. Um, and that, that's fine. So, so insta- indigenous majority. So, right, right. So exactly. It, it, which, which of course is, is right. It's, it's a artifact, not just an artifact, a result of colonial, of colonial history. Yeah, I think that, um, well, what, one of the biggest things in one of the stations that when it, what I was kind of, um, I ended up visiting about six different stations and kind of on the regular in Bolivia. And I was planning to go there to work with one station and that station used community radio, um, as part of the decolonization process. And I think that as a whole, most community radios in Bolivia were using radio as part of the de- what they call the decolonization process, which was separate, remembering their roots, getting back in touch with their indigenous um, stories, with the indigenous kind of tradition, and separating from, um, you know, a lot of the international pressures and material capitalism that was existing outside of Bolivia. What was the name of that station? Um, the one that I was going to originally. The the decolonization radio. Yeah, station it was called uh, Radio Trono. It's no longer in existence. Um, but one of the other, it's kind of partner radio station is called Wine, uh, Radio Waina Tambo, which is actually um, the station that's most famously. It was written about in the New York Times a few years ago. It's most famously known as the station that brought the indigenous hip hop movement to Bolivia. Hmm. So hearing this, you know, I want to, especially because uh, Bolivia and, and Peru are both, they're in, they're in our hemisphere, right? With the United States. And there's, there's a, a shared uh, cultural history and political influence uh, that has many, many different elements to it. Um, but so how, how would you compare then this sort of mission of, of Bolivian community radio with what community radio tries to do in the United States. Understanding that, you know, it's not, neither is a monolith, right? That stations are individual and often attuned to the needs of their communities. And, and I think in the United States with low power FM, we've seen even more sort of, um, sort of stations becoming even more individual in a lot of ways. But but how would you compare them? How would you compare the sort of, of missions, the similarities and the differences, if you can? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest, and this doesn't just go for the community radio stations in Bolivia. This goes for most of the community radio stations that I visited, period. Um, mm-hmm. There, so... In a lot of community radio stations in the U.S., you sign up for a different time, you apply for a different time, and you have your show, which is maybe... Like as a volunteer, as a bro- programmer. Yeah, as, as a volunteer a- or programmer, you have your show maybe with one to four other people, and then you finish your hour and your show, you pass it on to the next volunteer. These uh, stations, especially... A lot of the stations that I visited, but especially the stations in Bolivia, had a really different level of cohesiveness between the shows. And so it was more like 
people who identified with certain elements of that community, with that neighborhood, came together um, at that radio and decided, okay, here's what we're thinking for this day. People still had their individual shows to some extent, but there was just a lot more collaboration between what was going to happen in the various hours of the day, what type of news was going to be broadcast. Um, One of the youth programs that I regularly kind of attended and formed a relationship with, they, you know, the youth came together to build stories that were important to them while still separately doing different research on different news or bringing their own aspects to um, the station and to the program. But I think in general, people were much more collaborative than the typical community radio model in the U.S., that's that's really exciting. That's a, one of the reasons why we have you on to talk about how um, how people at other radio stations organize their work. And now, in this case, we're talking about uh, now. You're saying that this, that that kind of um, that kind of structure was more common in in Bolivia, or did you say around the world? Yeah, I would definitely say around the world. <laughs> um, so, people would ask t- me about community radio in the U.S., and it was like. They were like, oh, <laughs> it was just like totally, um, it was totally unheard of this idea that we have like different people who do different hours of the day who sometimes never meet. Like there are so many people at KFAI, the station that I'm at right now, who either I've never met or they haven't met each other, even though they've been. Yeah, silos. Yeah. Yeah. So to. To what do you attribute that difference? Why, why, why did these uh, different broadcast traditions develop so differently? And, and especially, I mean, you look at, at Bolivia, you know, as I've now learned, uh, having a tradition that is 80 uh, some years old um, and the American tradition ostensibly being about 60 years old. Um, why, what do you attribute the difference in, in, in this and in, in how they do what they do? Well, I mostly attributed to somewhat boring answer, which is communication laws. <laughs> um, okay, sure. That's not a boring answer for us. I mean, <laughs> right in the I wheelhouse. I wish that there was some like way more creative answer to that question, but I really do think that it has to do with communication laws. You know, um, in in the 1930s. Here, um, the Communications Act kind of created a platform for there to be more corporate stations and for those um, the radio frequency to be dominated by corporations. And so there's less opportunity for people to be involved in community radio. And so when there are community radio stations, this is kind of their structure um, and the structure that has been applied to many different stations. And I also think it has to do with something cultural. You know, there's a lot of great aspects to Americans um, and America having kind of this individual mindset. But um, in the form of community community radio, that's kind of also where it manifests. Like, okay, this is my time. So this is what I'm going to do during this this time period where um, it's great because there's a lot of independence around that. And, um, you know, like self-motivation and empowerment and all of these like really good things. I don't want to talk bad about American culture. I'm American, obviously. But like in other places, there's a much more um, collaborative mindset within the culture. And so that breeds something different. And I also think that there has been more space for community radio stations to exist in some places. In some places, there really hasn't. But in some places... Um, like Bolivia, for example, there's been a lot more space for there to be several different community radio stations that have popped up. So it uh, it has given a lot of opportunity for people to form a station based on the type of community that they want to be involved in creating radio with instead of just sharing their voice. Yes. And, and when you say uh, there's been opportunity for more stations, you mean like more stations in like a given city, town or geographic area, they can have a multiplicity of community radio serving them? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so your argument is sort of until really recently with, with the flowering of low power FM, Minneapolis, St. Paul as one market might really only have one community radio station and sort of American society is also pretty diverse in a place like Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so the number of, of different communities and voices and often marginalized voices is 
is it more multitudinous in some ways than it might be in, right. in a given place in Bolivia? Right. It's almost it's almost like every individual community radio program. It deserves its own station. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why you have to silo everything. Otherwise, it just it gets too mixed. You don't want a mixing pot. It right. Death. I mean, there and, is some. I mean, it's not that each each station is such its own silo either. There's a lot of collaboration among stations. But when there's a lot of different languages that are spoken, instead of having sometimes there are they, that one language just has its own station. So that right. people who want to practice or listen into that ethnic language, they can just call on that one. Yeah, which is, I know that's a real struggle at community radio stations that I'm intimately familiar with, The um, how often and how do we hand the station over to Spanish language programming? And what does that do to the English language listeners? And how, how, do, you even, how do you even handle that tension? I know it's, uh, I know it's controversial. Right at stations here on the West coast of the United States. Yeah. And same with the Midwest. Hmm. So thinking about this experience and especially, you know, this notion of, of decolonialization, right. In, in, in a place like Bolivia and attempting to, uh, uh, help to, I guess, promote really, uh, an indigenous culture, which otherwise has been, uh, and probably in many turns oppressed by, uh, by colonialism and maybe even, you know, under, under less, uh, oppressive regimes, uh, marginalized in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, now thinking about that in kind of in the background, you know, I mean, I have to ask about what, what we're experiencing this moment in time here in the United States. Uh, as we talk here, uh, we are now <laughs> uh, three days after the, the national election in which our new um, – our president-elect is Donald Trump who has in the course of his campaign expressed um, hostility, I think is the word I want to use, towards many cultural, uh, religious, language – uh, national diasporatic minorities, whether it is people who uh, come from Mexico or a Mexican root, people who are of, of Islamic faith who maybe uh, have an Arab background, uh, just to name a couple uh, <laughs> minorities. We've heard this sort of, of um, hostility towards expressed outrightly, uh, never mind his apparent support from groups that are more explicitly racist and, and white supremacist in their outlook. Um, that's the best way to characterize this. And I know I'm not doing a good job. You did okay. So community radio in the United States has often set aside time for ethnic minorities and folks whose mar own voices are marginalized for all sorts of reasons in mainstream media. Are there lessons do you think that right now are very relevant for American community radio based upon your experience in places like Tanzania or Bangladesh, or Bolivia, or Peru? Yeah, um, you know, honestly, one of the most valuable elements of community radio station is this ability. I mean, it really is a mechanism to organize from the grass on a grassroots level. It's a way of understanding each other, of sharing knowledge, and sharing stories to help us understand each other. And also, those are helping us understand these, or kind of reveal these questions that are helping us understand who we really are. Um, sorry, that that's a little complicated, but basically your question reminds me of when I first got to Bolivia, I was having a really hard time connecting with a lot of community radio. I was basically like knocking on doors of community radio stations that were, that I knew that I had heard were part of this decolonization movement. And I was knocking on their doors and some of them shut their doors <laughs> when they saw me. And their reason was hmm. they said to me, listen, we're a community radio station that's part of the decolonization process and you are American, which is basically yeah. the biggest colonizer in the world. And so we don't really want you involved here. We don't hmm. want you to be a part of this, which I totally get. You know what I mean? It's like, we don't even want you to do an interview. We don't, you know, we, yeah. what, what good could possibly come right of yeah. you? Like after decades and decades of, of, of legitimate experiences. 
uh, negative experience. And not only that, it's like you're not part of our community, so we don't really feel comfortable with you telling our story, which is mm-hmm. something that I still think about a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I mean, I think that I've really appreciated being able to share some of my experience, and I really love community radio, but it is some one of, like, kind of the internal conflicts that come up. It's like, who am I to talk about these stations? I visited them for maybe like a few months. I'm not part of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, I went to this um, kind of contact. I won't, I won't even call him a friend. He was kind of a contact that I had who is a sociologist. His name is Ivan Nogales. He wrote this book um, uh, in Spanish, translated. It's called The decolonization of the body. And, um, I went to him and I, and he had, and I went to him and he had a lot of volunteers from Europe who were part of his organization that worked in towards using art in the decolonization process. And I said to him, how do you do this? Like, how do you have all of these colonizers, part of the colonized community who are colonized countries, um, come here and be part of your decolonization process. I know it's not their fault. I know we're not trying to be colonizers, but we did, we were raised in that culture. Um, And he said, basically what I was trying to explain earlier, he said to me, listen, we're not just who we think we are. We're also what other people think we are. And at first I didn't really get it until he went on to explain that by having conversations and sharing stories with people who are different than us, we actually ask ourselves the self-essential questions that uncover who we really are. Mm. Um, And so I think that that has kind of helped me through this time period Mm -hmm. and helped me remember that continuing to be engaged in community radio during this time period and com- continuing to hear the stories of my, you know, uh, proximate kind of strangers, I would say, or people who are different than I am, who I, I live in the same community with, um, is really profound and can be really used as a, an amazing organizing element. I do think that the election of Donald Trump is like, um, pretty traumatic in a lot of ways. But I also think that community radio can be used as an incredible tool to help combat that and to help combat some of the trauma that that might exist. And, you know, does that sort of essential organizing element of community radio in the U.S., right, the, this sort of fact that we have these very siloed schedules, right, that that to some extent, volunteers are often or, or, or people who are on air are kind of atomic units. Is that something we need to work against? Is it is it a barrier? Is it something which which impedes community radio's effectiveness at, at this? Um, yes. And, and if so, do you have any sort of any sort of wisdom or advice, even if it's sort of provisional or even just like something which is super maybe obvious or simple, but maybe that we would otherwise overlook. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if I have any advice. I do think that, I mean, yeah, I I do have advice, which is talk to the people who are in your community radio station, make a conscious effort to form authentic relationships with people who are different than you, who are in the community radio station. You know, we as humans aren't as different as we think we are sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. And embracing those differences is a really beautiful thing. I really think that if we continue to be in those silos, that it's, we can't expect the country or our greater community to um, make change and become more compassionate and, and understanding of people who are different than us if we aren't doing it within our own community radio stations. Um, and the places that we're volunteering or where we're hosting shows. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that w- one of the stations that did a really great job at this was a radio station called Radio Sofalta FM, which was in Nepal, which I 
hadn't gotten to the point yet that I ended up going to Nepal when I was in Bangladesh. And they did um, an incredible job at reaching out to the community and also all of the volunteers and staff at that station made a really conscious effort to be very collaborative. They had a lot of meetings. They did a lot of activities together. Um, The woman who was kind of the manager of the station did a great job at bringing everybody together. Um, And because they had such strong relationships within the station and um, they were able to access the greater community a lot better. Um, And so I think that that was a really good learning opportunity for me to understand that those relationships that are close to me that exist within my station are really beneficial for the larger community and for my relationships with the larger community as well. Well, Sylvia Thomas, we're, we're reaching the end of our time on this episode and your year long journey around the world to visit all these community radio stations is something that we're going to revisit, uh, often here on the podcast. We'll have you back on to tell us more, uh, especially in specifics about the stations and and, and the lessons that you learned. Uh, in our hour together today, you didn't even uh, have an opportunity to say the word Africa <laughs> yet. <laughs> and true. I know that that's something we're very excited about to hear, to learn more about uh, about uh, what you learned at those stations. Um, what did, <laughs> it's, it's, this is so mean. What's the main lesson you learned after a year of community radio stations when you returned to the United States? Like, how did it change you? Yeah, I think that the biggest lesson that I learned, luckily I've had plenty of time to th- think about this question. Because <laughs> I've been back for about a year. Um, I've been back in the U.S. for about a year. But um, I think that the biggest thing that I learned or, uh, The biggest inspiration I guess I had was I saw so many community radio stations making incredible change in their community on very little resources and on so much creativity. The creative power that I witnessed was really unbelievable. And I think it really inspired me to understand that getting in touch with my own creativity um, on a collective level could really influence the people in my community. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I really enjoyed that discussion with uh, Sylvia Thomas. And and again, I have to say we're really lucky that she's got the time to spend with us and share her experiences and her insights. And, uh, you know, she mentioned how, you know, that the difference between community radio in the United States, how it's often practiced and community radio uh, elsewhere is that, you know, community radio has this sort of patchwork schedule. And in many ways it's great because it's like this, it's, it's sort of a, it is like a quilt that, that in many ways represents uh, the diversity of many communities. But with the downside often is that there are still borders between the patches, right? No, you might, if you might be a fan of one show, if you tuned in, tomorrow at the same time you might get something so drastically different that you you've never you can't find that show again that you so connected right and especially because it's a listening habit that's different from what we are taught by the rest of the dial where we know you go to one station for classic rock and one station for country and one station for news talk but also you know point she pointed out how that same patchwork exists within the stations themselves right there's a certain atomicity to our experience of i go do my show maybe at midnight and maybe i don't know the person who does their show at three o'clock in the afternoon on saturdays and i reflect i reflected on that while she was speaking it because uh i uh, chaired the programming committee at a community radio station for uh, about four or five years in the mid-90s at WEFT in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. So uh, as a station almost entirely volunteer-run, and so we did not have a program director. We had a programming committee that made all the programming decisions. And as a chair, you know, uh, your job is to sort of organize and whatever, but you don't have any more say than anybody else serving on the, com- on the committee is democratically run. But a wonderful part of having that role is that you – by default, meet every single person who comes into the station 
basically at least any person who comes into the station and wants to be on the air, mm-hmm. including people who don't necessarily make it on the air, right? Because they may not, they may put in a proposal for a show that doesn't make it on at some point. And perhaps they stay as a volunteer, but you still meet them because they have to come and at least present their proposal to you. And that connection, I felt like I had to the communities of Champaign-Urbana is so difficult to replicate in so many other ways, right? So I knew our Sunday morning African-American gospel hosts as well as I knew our country hosts as well as I knew uh, like young people doing anarchic, chaotic punk rock in the middle of the night, as well as I knew folk who, you know, people doing the folk shows or the jazz shows or the labor talk radio show. Like I knew everyone and I was sort of forced also to develop an appreciation for what they did because to me, it was very important, you know, that my job was not there to help program a station full of shows that I like personally that, you know, are totally my sort of radio, but to pick shows that were, that would do service to the community. And to sort of judge that you have to begin to understand what different programs for different communities might be about and how they're programmed and that there might be different sensibilities with regard to aesthetics and structure and, and such, and to not, impose, at least is my view, not try to impose a a sort of professionalized, rigid kind of aesthetic that, you know, that you might inherit from a certain types of public radio might inherit from somewhere else in every show. And uh, I felt like I got to, that also helped me get to know all of these other hosts and programmers better because I had to kind of get to know their shows, which is sort of getting to know them in, in, in a different way. And to be able to walk into the station at any hour of the day and whoever's on the air, I knew their name, could say hello, knew something, you know, something about them. And there's certainly some folks I was better friends with than others, but looking back on it, I'm not sure at the time I knew what a privilege that was as I know now, uh, you know, some 20 years later. Yeah. Same here. It's uh, you're making me nostalgic because the, the most diverse set of people that I ever had in a community was when I was uh, a part of the community radio station KPFA. And uh, I think as a listener, I would not have experienced it the same way. Uh, It was because I was always working something in the station uh, and and because my schedule was was so uh, excitingly unpredictable that I would be be brought on to different – to play different roles at different times of the day that I got to meet everybody. At some point in my eight years or so at the station, I really, you know, people, pe- the, the people who uh, hosted the Sunday morning African-American gospel program uh, became friends of mine because when I was brought on to, to, to substitute host the, the news and public affairs program that came on after them uh, and so on. So many different people inside of a station. Uh, I wanted to mention that that Sylvia Thomas reached out to us because she had something to share. Uh, we, we, we were not smart enough or industrious enough to find her and know that, that we needed to book her on the program. She, in fact, uh, found us. And wow, are we thankful. So if, if you think you have a story to share about how community, community radio's uh, role on this planet, let's just put it that way, if you are part of a community radio station and you want to share with us uh, anything at all, we, we can't wait to hear from you. That's why we're here. So uh, give us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We yeah, can't, and, we can't if, wait to hear from if you. If you know somebody we should speak to, maybe you don't necessarily have something that, that you wish to share, but you know there's someone out there who has some great knowledge or experience to drop, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you know, we don't get enough of these tips. <laughs> we wish we got more, but I mean, you know, it also forces us to do our job, I guess. Um but we really, you know, we, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, to the best of our ability, we want this to to be uh, itself kind of reflective of community radio yeah. and, and for this to be community podcasting where we're speaking less about a strictly geographically defined community but a community of, of interest, a community of practice uh, that is defined around this, this great love of radio. So do please drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. 
Um, I think we've got some good stuff coming up uh, on future editions. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to try and dig in to some of these questions about what a Trump presidency means for community radio, means for our airways, means for our ability and rights to communicate, be heard, and to hear. Um, certainly, uh, we're looking to hear from you on that as well. Are there questions you'd like us to investigate or things that you would like to know? And maybe we can help go find the right person to help answer them. We'd love to hear that too. Send us an email to uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I said at the top of the show, and I want to say at the end, this is just a stark reminder of why we need community radio. And for all of you working in community radio and listening and supporting, thank you and keep up the good work. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.